This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo. On this episode, Rebecca and I chat with Corey Quinn about mulling over multi-cloud. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 108. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Rebecca, how you doing? Welcome back. I am doing well. It's good to be here. Welcome back to you, Jeremy. Yes, it's been it's been busy um, the last uh, the last few weeks. And so uh, what have you been up to lately? Me? Well, I've done a lot of poetry writing and uh, nothing is that easy to rhyme with serverless. <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually, I, I found some things to rhyme with serverless, um, but uh, me too. But, anyways, but... <laughs> um, we'll so, uh, so we have a. Uh, I mean, this is a monumental guest. I mean, this is a big get for us. Renowned, I think, um, because uh, he is renowned, right? And so, um, our guest today, he's the chief cloud economist at the Duckbill Group, uh, author of the last week in AWS newsletter, host of Screaming in the Cloud and Morning Brief podcast. He's a regular cloud speaker. Uh, a writer, he instigates on Twitter, which is always fun. Um, and of course, he's a constant thorn in uh, Amazon Web Services side. Um, so I like to call him DJ Snarky Snark. I don't know if that's a, a good name for him or not, but uh, Corey Quinn is with us today. Hey, Corey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy, Rebecca. It's, it's always great to have the opportunity to both speak with you folks and indulge my ongoing love affair with the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so um, it is great to have you here. Um, I've wanted it to have really you on for is, a long isn't time. It? It, it really is. Um, and I know, Rebecca, you and I were talking earlier, um, and you you have kind of a funny story the first time you met uh, Corey, right? Yeah, I second the motion that it's great to have you here uh, for you, for us to have you, or whatever it is that you said. Um, I I don't know if it's funny. I just, when I was, I was super excited when you were coming on, and I was remembering back to when I first met you in person and you know you're this classic internet instigator and you're a larger than life type of presence even in regular life and uh, I, I think it was 2016 at some um, at the San Francisco summit for AWS and uh, I, I pulled you in because I wanted to interview leaders in the cloud space and we were doing quick things on social media and I, I, I misstated that you were a hero because I'm like, this is a larger than life person. Of course, this person's a hero. And I was like, hey, how does it feel to be an AWS hero? And you said, well, I'm not. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and you were like, I am too damn crass. Maybe not verbatim, but essentially that. And um, no, I'm the AWS community villain these days. I would also accept <laughs> anti-hero. They never invited me to the program, but it's, it's probably not my speed at this point just because it's... It, Authenticity is important. As much fun as it would be to sit there and get a bunch of free credits in return for remarkably little work, it there are there are challenges with that. It's I, I'm trying to, in many respects, build a platform where my story has been and it remains. You can buy my attention, but never my opinion. 
<laughs> and the value behind this is great. I, I don't get a whole lot of free gimmies from AWS, and I don't, I don't need or want those things. What I want is them to fix some of the problems bedeviling customers. And that, that's really been my position ever since uh, I started doing this. It also would have been 2017 or 2018 because 2017. I started the newsletter in March of 2017. Before mm-hmm. that, it's, so what's it like to be a hero in 2016? My question would be, what's that? Uh, it's like, I've never, I've never dragged a child out of a, uh, out of a burning building. Uh, lately, I've been dragging the child out from in front of the television watching Paw Patrol, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that uh, fact check. You are right. I think uh, my conception of time is a little off these days. It's still honest. 2020, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, let's go back to 2019. Um, no, actually, I, and I, the, Corey, the first time you and I met, um, I, w- I believe it was in the basement of the Sands Convention Center um, uh, before reInvent uh, on a Sunday morning. And I remember, you know, so even though you're, you, you know, maybe uh, you don't get the perks from AWS, everyone that was walking by from AWS certainly wanted to come and, and have a conversation with you. You seem to, you seem to know quite a, quite a few people there. I've I've got to be direct on this. I really am a little concerned about what the next in-person reInvent is going to look like because lockdown hit last year and I, okay, my, my proxy for how large my audience is is generally Twitter followers. Not that that validates or means anything, but that, that is an easy number to grasp and reason about over time. Right. And at this point now, because I basically doubled down on shitposting during the pandemic, the my audience has tripled in size since then, and it is AWS centric. So I'm wondering, like, are people going to be following me into the bathroom when I'm at reInvent? Because there were long, long stretches in previous years at those events where I, I would be sitting around and looking for people to talk to. No one knew who I was, and that was okay. It, at some level, it's one of those doors. Once you walk through, you can't really walk back. But we'll see. It's it's a it's the best kind of problem. Well, second best kind of problem. The best kind is someone else's. The second best kind of problem is one you have to deal with now. Right. Right. Well, fame. Hey, you know, fame comes with a lot of burdens. I I would agree, but it's all it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's I, some wit. I think it was Bill Murray said. Uh, it wasn't Bill, I forget who it was, but the the thing was, oh, you want to be rich and famous. Great. Uh, start off with rich and see if that gets the things you think you want. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Fame is, fame is interesting. Um, so uh, let's get into a, a conversation here because um, besides just the uh, the snarky posts on Twitter, um, uh, you know, and, and, and occasionally rubbing, uh, rubbing, <laughs> rubbing some people the wrong way, maybe, which I think is, uh, is always fun to watch. Um, uh, you actually run a business um, and you've been uh, you've been doing this cloud econo- uh, economist thing for quite some time um, and you write a lot you speak a lot you talk to a lot of people and I know for me um, you know, speaking to people on the podcast is the best way um, for me to learn something new and, and kind of dive deeper into different things so um, I know you'll know a lot about this and I know this is probably one of your favorite topics which is multi-cloud um, and you wrote a post about this, I think it was uh, maybe middle of last year, um, where you talked about what multi-cloud was and what the problems with it and kind of you know sort of summed it up as multi-cloud doesn't actually exist. Um, and I always look at it in, in sort of three different ways, right? There's this cloud agnostic aspect of it where like I can just move my workloads around all these different clouds, which I think uh, is probably not, uh, not the right thing to do and probably not even possible. Um, then you sort of have this like cloud diversification way of doing it where I'll build some apps here 
here, some apps there. Um, but then you have a what I think is a better definition of multi-cloud, which is using best of breed services when it makes sense. Um, so I'm just curious, like maybe you can you know tell the audience here how you think about multi-cloud um, and maybe why trying to trying to you know pursue that as sort of a fool's errand. Let me begin by with a disclaimer that this is for the general case. When I talk to individuals who say, ah, I do the thing you said not to do at our company. What do you think about that? My answer is, well, I, I, I think you're probably on the right path because I'm talking in the general case. You have mm -hmm. more context into your constraints than I do. You're almost certainly right. What I'm against is this idea of building something from day one to run in every cloud provider just because that seems like a best practice. No, it's dumb. Don't do it. Because it keeps you from being able to leverage any differentiated offerings across the board. I wrote a, well, let's let's charitably call it an application that I use to build out my weekly newsletter that goes out to the last week in AWS subscribers. It last time last count it was over 30 lambdas function, uh, about four or five APIs gateway, APIs gateway. And that was it. It's, it just ties together a whole bunch of different things. The code that it runs the stuff lives on GitHub, so I guess that uses Azure. And I use Retool, which also runs on Azure, but I don't have to care about that or know that. And a lot of the things that I write long form in there get posted to my blog as well, which lives at WP Engine, but under the hood, that's right, last week in AWS.com lives on GCP. So I don't care about those things, and that makes sense. What I'm not building is that entire application to run simultaneously across different providers. Although I've done some digging, I could port it to GCP or Oracle Cloud in a week. Azure would take about a month, and IBM Cloud in about, basically, when hell freezes over, because <laughs> we're talking about clouds here. It's a good point. But I have the strategic exodus option which means I don't have to actually do anything. When I wind up building a service that, when I wind up building something that leverages AWS services into this, I don't stop and think, oh, that's gonna be hard to replace if I have to move. Because why would I, why would I realistically, for my business needs, have to move? Right. I don't see that there's a valid answer to that. Right, I mean, and that's, and that's the thing that comes with lock-in anyways, is that, I mean, the second you choose any service, um, you're going to lock yourself in in some way. Um, and, I, and I know another thing you mentioned in there that I thought was super important, um, and I, this is something, Rebecca, maybe um, you want to dig into a little bit more, is this the people aspect of that, right? This idea where, um, you know, if you say, to, if you announce that you're migrating to a different cloud, um, you know, how many engineers are like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm going to throw away what I've just learned over the last six years and, and learn something completely new. I, and to be clear, I'm not a particular partisan here. I, the reason my business focuses on AWS bills is because that's where the expensive problem is. My, my goal for this industry is in five or 10 years, if I want to start some nonsense Twitter for pet style startup, I want the question of what cloud provider I use to be a difficult one. I want there to be multiple viable great answers, not the obvious answer and then a bunch of also rants. And I, I worry that monocultures are not good for customers. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to follow up on that a little bit, this idea of, um, it, and maybe it's, it's, the way to say it would be a potentially controversial thing, but that's not scary to talk to, to you about potentially controversial things is, let's say, no matter what migration you did, let's say you were going to lose a third of your engineers, in the long vision horizonless space of time, is that such a bad thing? Or is that actually indicating something different where you're like, if I have a third of engineers who don't want to learn something new, ultimately, I don't necessarily want those engineers to be building my product? Um, that's a very simplified would, question or way to say it, but sure. that's what I'm curious about. 
I would disagree on some level with the idea that the, for example, let's say that I give all of the speaking into microphone pieces up and I go back to being a SRE. Great. I know AWS super well because I've been working with it for 10 years. If I'm in it, like that is the skill set that I am known for and that I am, that I have honed. I can do that job rather well. If I have to migrate to a different cloud provider, because that's what my company decides it's going to do. Well, I do I want to continue focusing on this highly in demand, highly valuable skill, or do I want to go back to basics and learn a second cloud provider? If I decide I want to continue on the AWS path, it's not about not learning something new so much as it is continuing to hone a very specific, very in demand skill. And I have a very hard time dinging people who make that choice. I don't totally. think that that is an unreasonable decision for them to make. It also it does speak as well to the fact that you are already locked in through your choice of how your security is handled in different environments, through how identity is managed, and of course the staff, because not everyone's going to be on board with a cloud migration. Now, it, it, from a business perspective, okay, we're going to have some turnover uh, concerns if we do that migration. That is not inherently a problem. It just adds cost. Cloud migrations are already expensive as hell, regardless, because you're going to, in almost every case, uh, have to borrow from feature velocity in order to do it, and that's mm -hmm. expensive. The opportunity cost, as well as the actual cost, that adds up to a fairly large number. So the question that needs to be answered is, what is the upside that justifies that level of expense? And very often, there isn't one. Yeah, and I'm curious, so is there, let's say there is an upside in this Oh, there can be. There absolutely can world. be. Yeah. Is there, what is a good way, is there a good way or the best of the worst ways to do immigration? Like, is it d democratic where you're like, we're going to see how many people would be interested in doing this? Or is it just straight up numbers gaming? Like, what is, what are some good ways to implement when you're like, yeah, okay, you don't, you don't run those things do like this. a democracy in almost every case. <laughs> it's a strategic decision yeah. that business has to get into. It's not like, if you, if you don't pull the engineers for things like that, like, well, it seems like it'd be a fun afternoon project. It's not. The most common way to do a migration is to attempt to migrate from one cloud to another, get halfway there, give up because it's hard and declare multi-cloud victory. Uh, we see this with a lot of <laughs> hybrid stories as well. Right. That's that's fine. The reality is what happens instead of what you plan on. The, the challenge is, is that there, we always tell ourselves a great lie and we never get away from it. That after this next sprint, Suddenly, we're going to make all the right decisions. We're going to start building things as they should be. And that day never comes. There's oh, Technical debt is load-bearing, and it's there for a reason. And we love to, as engineers, talk in condescending terms uh, like legacy, which is engineering speak for it makes money. And it's there, like, and it is like it is for a reason. No one shows up to work in the morning expecting to do a terrible job at work today unless they work in the Facebook ethics department. So people are doing the best they have with what they have. The the sign of a junior consultant is someone who walks into an environment, looks at what's here and says, well, this is crap. Great. Why is it like that? Was it a lack of understanding? Is there a constraint perhaps you don't see? Does this predate the easy answer that you're about to suggest? What drives this? Why is it the way that it is? And without that context, you just sound like a tool. Don't do that. Right. Right. Um, so, so speaking of the, going back to the migration piece of this, like there's always potentially that chance where you say, okay, we need to make this migration. And you're right. There are reasons why you can do it. Maybe there's not Let me give it, I've been dunking on it. Let me give you an example of a yeah. good one where, all right, I'm a SaaS company or I sell a product and I build the thing on AWS and someone, and someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'd like to buy your service and spend a lot of money on it. Does it run on Azure? And the answer is no, it doesn't. And they say, great, but Walmart is 
one of our customers and they refused right. any of their data there. So we can't buy you. We can't be, make this giant purchase and commitment with you unless it runs on Azure. And I'm like, oh, Azure. Of course it runs on Azure or will by the time that contract gets signed. Exactly. And then you have a valid reason to move the a segment of that workload over. You obviously need to honor your customers and be transparent with them. But even in that story, you're going to be able to run the application on top of Azure, but you're not going to move your marketing site, your billing system, a lot of your internal processes over to multiple clouds. You're going to take the workload that you are delivering to a customer that handles data at a minimum and then evaluate from there. You have to meet customers where they are. And if they're in other cloud providers, well, as an ISV, independent software vendor, that's where you're going. Right. And that's not a foolish thing to do. Right. And so then that's that's what, sort of where my question is going back to what um, Rebecca was saying about are there easy ways to do this? And I think from a migration standpoint, a lot of people um, believe that if we build on Kubernetes, um, then we can just go ahead and move things over to, you know, cloud B from cloud A. Um, but with the pr proliferation of all these managed services, whether it's DynamoDB or Cosmos DB or Firestore or any of these other things, um, you know, is that... Is that really a reality? I mean, have you seen anybody actually to this say like, hey, we can just go ahead and move our compute workload over? Because it seems to me moving a couple of Lambda functions to a different fast service, for example, is not a ton of work, right? And and transporting an entire Kubernetes cluster over, um, you know, without the data, because it's probably not part of it, would be a, a much more challenging, uh, you know, sort of escapade, I guess. It is no longer, let me reframe that. It is, it does, those workloads do exist, but they are uncommon. An example would be that I am going to bring a some amount of data in from either public sources or the data is small enough that egress charges don't matter to my workload. I'm going to do a lot of processing on that data. Maybe it's a bunch of compile time jobs or a build farm or something like that. And it's not particularly time dependent. And then I'm going to return the data to, which is relatively small, to some centralized repository. In, in scenarios like that, it is strictly about where can I run a container that is economically optimized for me. That's when you can start doing things like arbitraging between different providers at different times of day and whatnot. And that takes some cost and some complexity and some engineering. But at certain points of scale, it becomes viable. That's not most workloads, to be very clear. There are things that tie you to particular environments. Data gravity is very real, and egress costs don't help with any of that. So there's a, where your data lives is going to be your primary cloud provider in almost every case. And when we see folks who have multiple cloud, multiple cloud vendors, even regardless of what sense you want to use, IaaS and all of those places, for example, not the, well, I use G Suite, so now I'm a Google Cloud customer, where we see folks doing workload deployments. In most cases, we're seeing 80 to 90% of their spend is on their primary, and then there's a long tail there. And there are valid use cases for that too. I do not believe, for example, that AWS is going to suffer a sudden and irrevocable loss of S3 data across multiple regions instantly. It is not how they build things. They have, they have a near complete control plane separation or anything like that, et cetera, et cetera. But it's easier for me to back up that data to Google Cloud, say, than it is for you to explain that concept to an auditor every time they come back and have to talk to me about this mm. or my board when they ask that question. It is they rehydrate the business level backup of core data to another cloud provider. That's not foolish at all. Interesting. But under, make sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing. That's right. the thing that gets missed. 
All right. So the other thing that I'd love to talk about, because this is something that I have this conversation with a lot of people and you being a billing expert, um, I know you make a lot of jokes about, you know, the cost of your Lambda functions are really low, um, but there's other cloud costs. I think people are starting to build more sophisticated, um, uh, you know, cloud applications, even if they're not entirely serverless, they're using a lot of these metered services to do it. So I'm just really curious, like that serverless pay per use billing model, um, is that a nightmare for you know the procurement and the accounting departments in some of these things? Or is it starting to become more of an acceptable practice? Cloud is a nightmare for a lot of those folks too, because there's a, gen there's a giant misunderstanding in many respects that, come, that distills down to the cloudier that something is, and by which I mean the closer it gets to serverless versus a data center, the less expensive it becomes, but also the less predictable. There's mm. a baseline cost to service your first customer of a bunch of things that need to exist in your environment. And the additional cost beyond that is uh, distills down to a model of unit economics, something we saw during the pandemic in many shops that prided themselves on auto-scaling, for example, saw 80% drop-off in user traffic, but their bill remained largely intact at flatline. Or doing what AWS bills always do, and so increasing with time because data doesn't delete itself. Great. Auto-scaling is more of an aspirational thing in some cases, and people use the term elasticity in cloud to mean, oh, I can scale up. And you need to scale up because right. if not, you're dropping customer traffic on the ground. Scaling down has never really been a primary area of focus for companies because at that point, it's just, it's just extra money which I know sounds like it's facile, but it's not really. Losing customers and disappointing them is way more important than we spent a little bit too much on our infrastructure. So people don't emphasize the scale down part of the story. Now, as we wind up seeing the whole serverless approach goes, there are benefits to procurement done right. Uh, Simon Wardley framed it once as tracing the flow of capital through your organization. For a long time, there, it was hard to find expensive Lambda bills. Uh, there was a blog post somewhat recently on the AWS Management and Governance blog on July 22nd, uh, how the Washington Post's ARC XP uses CloudWatch Metrics Explorer to reduce costs. And it talks about how the Washington Post had access into uh, the early beta of CloudWatch Metrics Explorer and how there was a internal proprietary algorithm that they used based upon a variety of different metrics that they then gather and then figure out how to handle provision concurrency and how much of that's being used and dynamically address it in real time. And AWS strongly talked about this as if they were indispensable at creating this. Yeah, the Washington Post is a reference client of ours. Who exactly do you think came up with a lot of those principles and ideas right. during the course of an engagement there? And the Washington Post team is great at this. They are phenomenal. They are further ahead down the serverless path in some of their workloads than most companies you'd talk to. And what's also interesting about this, and I want to be very clear, this is the sort of thing that people will read and think, oh, I need to absolutely implement something like this. And they'll go and do this and spend time on it. And I'll check their, I'll check their AWS bill, talk about these efforts. And they're spending 70 bucks a month on Lambda's function. And maybe that's not the thing you want to be building that advances you the state of your business. Let's admit it. The Washington Post is very clearly a scaled out company. They right. are doing a lot of neat stuff with serverless and they are clearly doing things that are interesting enough to be at the vanguard of what we're seeing as far as cost optimization goes in the world of serverless. They wouldn't have been featured in the AWS blog there otherwise, if they weren't. And let's talk a little bit more about that and about serverless billing and how the serverless model shifts a lot of um, operational decisions to developers, right? And um, I'm wondering if 
that leaves them responsible for infrastructure costs. And I'm wondering if that's, is that a good thing? Cause they can add agility is it an extra burden that can have terrible consequences. Um, how are, how do you see companies mitigating this and should they, should they be mitigating it? That $70 bill that was made at an operational decision from um, a developer standpoint. Context matters. And I think that the idea, there's a fallacy inherent to the question that suddenly engineers are responsible for the infrastructure bill. Who is responsible for the bill is a question in many organizations. And invariably, the answer of the responsibility is who owns the P&L for the group, the workload, whatever it happens to be. And they can delegate the work, but not the responsibility. So yelling at engineers when they have a, a bill mistake is fruitless. We've all had bill mistakes. Let's if I have screwed things up on the bill this year. If I can do it, I promise so can you. It's it is something that happens. That is the nature of how this works. The, the thing that I think engineers get wrong in many cases when it comes to bill work is that they don't have access or insight to strategy in many cases, and that's fine. There's a certain engineering mindset type, and I am clearly one of them, or I wouldn't have started the business that I did, where I will spend six to eight weeks just knocking 200 bucks a month off of my developer environment. Yeah, I've been bezeling more than that in office supplies during that time span. So maybe that's not the thing that's going to determine the, the best use of the best use of my time. The thing that gets missed is that we learn to do this in many cases in our spare time, as in school or whatnot, when our time has remarkably little value. To your employer, you are expensive. You are more expensive than the AWS environment you're working on in almost every case. Payroll dwarfs Amazon bills. Uh, rent in the office, in the corporate office, is usually right up there too, depending on these specifics, determines where it places. Yeah, full-time remote suddenly has some financial advantages too. Right. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in JIRA straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. Yeah, and I'm actually curious more about that. The um, I mean, I I make the assumption that the developer becomes more responsible um, for the bill. I mean, and when I say responsible, I don't think, um, and I don't think uh, Rebecca means this either that that they they have to own up to it that it's somehow their fault. But the but the 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 idea of them sort of owning that decision 
as opposed to the old operational way of doing it of like, well, we're going to procure, you know, 100 servers and we're going to spin these up. And I know there's a lot of, you know, uh, scalability and things in the cloud, EC2 instances and auto scaling groups and all that kind of stuff that can, you know, really change depending on what the workloads are. But I mean, you know, having, you know, choosing Kinesis uh, and, and having to scale up that with multiple streams and, and things like that, or um, using DynamoDB poorly, um, you know, can cost a lot of money. But I'm just curious if you've seen this, especially with the number of bills you've been looking at and your group's been looking at, I mean, have you seen any of these like mistakes that add up to something that you'd be like, oh, this was a really big mistake or, or are we still talking about small dollars here? It depends is always the answer. Because remember as well that every, every bill aspect and every dollar amount is either wildly insignificant or wildly significant depending upon constraints. Right. If I'm a student in a dorm room learning how AWS works and I fall into one of their cleverly laid traps like the managed NAT gateway and I'm in the free tier, why did I just get charged $70 this month? That right. is disastrous because that's my food budget. I'm not going to sit here and tell them they're wrong. Conversely, if I'm spending... I don't know, $180 million a year on AWS, and I leak my credentials to GitHub, for example, and someone spins up a bunch of things to mine Bitcoin, it's very hard to impact the bill by a meaningful percentage, because that's a lot of Bitcoin. Right. And it's the mistakes get uh, magnified at certain at certain tiers and then go away at other tiers as well. It the, the Let me explain how a bill scenario typically plays out in most companies. Uh, the Amazon bill shows up at the end of the month to someone in finance and they see, oh, Amazon, the bookstore, how the hell much are people reading? It's way bigger this month than it was last month. And they dig into it and there's this thing called S3 on it because that's how the bill breaks things down. It doesn't break things down like by the data science team or whatnot. So they play this game of corporate telephone. And by the time it gets to someone who can impact the bill in many environments, they're not allowed to see the bill, which is just a genius move, complete genius. Great job, team. They are then asked about this, but what they hear after it's filtered through all of that game of telephone is you're spending too much as opposed to the bill is higher. Is that what the question becomes? Is that the new normal? What does that mean right. for our projections? And critically, especially at large scale, the way that discount the discounting works in all cloud providers, but AWS most notably, we do an awful lot of uh, of enterprise discount program addenda uh, negotiation with AWS on behalf of our customers. It's one of our core consulting offerings. We help them figure out how to handle their their bill, the their long-term contractual obligations. The way the discounting works is it's how much are you committing to spend over a period of time? Right. And if you commit too much, well, you owe that money regardless, but you're not getting anything for it. That's a miss. Conversely, if you wildly overshoot your commitment, well, you could have gotten a better discount, so you left money on the table. What should that commitment level be? And answering that question is one of the things we do, but it's a hard question to answer. And when you have a sudden bill increase like that, it's, okay, what does this mean for our commitments? Should we be reaching out to our account manager out of cycle to, fig to wind up potentially talking about negotiating a, uh, an extension or that gets us better discounting? Or is this a temporary aberration that's going to go away next month once we make a good business decision, like deleting that second set of backups or firing Pat? And great, that, that is something that becomes a, a nuanced conversation. That nuance is very often lost on the engineers who all they hear is, you spent too much on this. And very right. often, that's not the right answer. Yeah, and, I, and I've got so many follow-up questions to that, but I'm going to limit it to two. First of all, I'm going to make a comment. Like, aren't tags, aren't that the way to, to break it down that it was the data science team versus the other thing? You don't have to answer that question because I already know the answer. Um, and then the other question I would have is, isn't that... 
isn't that just a bad practice not to pass through or to show teams what their actual cost is or somehow tie those to like cost, you know, as a cost of goods sold? Like, why did we spend more as a data team this month than we did last month? Oh, well, because we ran additional experiments and maybe there's projections in there as to, you know, what that generates for revenue down the road or whatever it is. But doesn't that just seem, I mean, it sounds like you think it's backwards, um, but why would, why would companies not do that? Why would you not pass that information through? And why would, now that you can bill and almost a lot of the stuff is paper use, that you can tie it to your actual, you know, the actual productive use, you can trace that through the business. Why would you not expose that back to the teams? In theory, you're spot on correct. Go ahead and build that. I'll wait. Let me give you an example, harkening back to what you just said. I'm going to run Kubernetes on an AW, in an AWS account. Great. It has a whole bunch of different things working inside of it, and it winds up service, having shared services between different teams. And okay, now there's a spike. From everything AWS sees about that, regardless of whether it's EKS, regardless of whether you're running it yourself on EC2 instances, it doesn't matter. It looks like one really weirdly behaved application that talks across availability zones sometimes, but other times it doesn't because it has no sense of zone affinity. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing weird usage patterns start and stop. And what the workloads are inside of that is completely impenetrable to any form of tagging system that currently exists unless you build a metadata system outside of it, which you first. And at that point, how do you allocate that? When you have 40 teams that are all interacting with that Kubernetes environment, how do you isolate down into who did what? The answer in many cases, and I'm not making this up, is I go diving into VPC flow logs to figure out the network traffic, time of day, mm -hmm. port, what's talking to what, then start talking to people. What's likely to be doing this particular behavior pattern at three in the morning? And they'll, oh yeah, that's that job that fires off. Was there a change recently? No, except we wrote the whole thing three weeks ago. Does that count? Yeah. And then we start having those conversations. But how do you get exposure to that? And how do you, more than that, distill that down into something that someone in finance is going to be able to reason about? The answer it, at a certain point of scale is you have a team that's devoted to doing this. And that team is cross-functional with different, uh, different memberships, with a membership that comprises different functional specialties. Because what we've done at the Duckbill Group is not something that you should have to do at most companies, which is take engineers and teach them how to operate at finance. Um, spoiler, right. by the way, it is easier to do that than it is to teach finance people to work as engineers. It's like they're both hard disciplines, to be very clear, but you can at least get to a point of understanding the relevant terminology and its impact faster by going from engineering to finance than if you're coming from a deep finance background, trying to figure out just what the hell a Fargate might be. Sounds a lot like um, forensic cloud accounting. Absolutely. And be careful. You always find a body. Yeah. And I don't know how there's not already a primetime TV show about this, you know, on NBC. It's like NCIS and then forensic data accounting with the DuckTales I don't understand. Group. I don't have my own Netflix comedy special yet about I think it's cloud coming. computing. I think it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, yes, I, I would love I would love to see that as well. I mean, they make documentaries about pretty much everything now, so I, I don't see why there's not a Corey Quinn hour or something like that. Um, so another thing you mentioned, and I, I love that example, the managed NAT gateway, because that drives me nuts. It's like, hey, secure everything. Oh, but if you want to get outside of it now, you've got to pay $35 a month or, or whatever it is at an absolute like baseline for some of those things. And that it's drives me nuts. It's a tax on going about your business, and it right. drives me up a wall. Let me be clear here for folks 
folks who have not delved into the joy of this. If you have a private subnet in AWS, it by default cannot speak to anything outside of that subnet. Cool. You can add a managed NAT gateway, which lets it do that. But it adds a data, there's an, there's an instance fee of, I think, something like, uh, what is it, four or five cents an hour in that range. I don't, yeah, believe it or not, I've not yeah. memorized the entirety of the pricing catalog. And on top of that, it charges- you. I was going to quiz you on that, but that's all right. And on top of that, there's also a 4.5 cent per gigabyte data processing fee that is layered on top of any data transfer fees as well. Which means that if you have not taken the extra step of setting up an S3 gateway endpoint inside that private subnet, which is free- Storing data in S3 goes from free by having that to incurring a four and a half cent per gigabyte data processing fee. That is the same as if you had stored that data for two months in S3. It is ludicrous and it is offensive. And if you were to run your own NAT instance yourself and that wasn't managed, that data processing fee would also be absent and all you'd have to pay for is the instance fee, which would not be particularly egregious. It is... It is something that is obnoxious. Customers hate it. I've never yet found a customer who thought it was fair. It's one of the easy examples I continually go to of trying to make a dollar eroding customer trust. Because with things like that happen, everyone has learned now that whenever AWS launches a new service, the first thing you look at is not the shiny marketing page or the customer story. You pull up the pricing page because how is this going to screw me is the question that everyone either learns or is about to learn to ask before you delve into anything. Because pricing is also marketing on some level. It's who is this targeted for? Uh, Amazon Kendra, they did a great job of talking about that for 20 minutes on stage at reInvent when it first came out. Like, this is amazing. And I looked into it and, oh, it starts at 7,500 bucks right. a month. <laughs> yeah, you realize I can hire someone whose full-time job it is is to be my uh, my internal uh, repository search person and get me whatever data I ask for and come out ahead, right? right. So right. yeah, not for me. It's for big enterprises. If they'd said that at the beginning, I would have not bothered paying attention. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about... Um the enigmas of pricing and needing to be able to first go to that pricing page, even be like, what is this going to be for me? Um, I know that Jeremy and I, and I think a lot of people have talked about this, heard about this, that AWS data transfer costs are another enigma to most people. Um, how do you, are they justified? How much does it add to a company's total bill? What do you, what do you think about AWS data? Transfer? It benchmarks out to about 10% or so, but we see significant deviations from that. Um, fun example. Do you know that it costs more for me to move data? between a an availability zone in one region to an availability zone in that same region, then it costs me to move that data from Virginia to Ohio or vice versa. It costs twice as much to do that. And that, that seems like a really weird thing. Their data transfer pricing has, their data egress pricing specifically, has not materially moved in ages. And it still feels like 1998 pricing. It starts at nine cents a gigabyte to send something externally to the internet. And, Good year, though. Oh, sure. But the other <laughs> side of it is that you you look at this, and it's awful because you're 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 reasoning about this. Okay, well, data transfer bandwidth must be super expensive, right? Yeah, but if I send something into AWS from the outside, it's free with an asterisk next to it because there are exception cases, but it's generally free. Huh? That sets a weird misaligned expectation. Then you have companies like Oracle Cloud showing up where they are charging a tenth of what AWS does for egress bandwidth to the internet. 
And I have a laundry list of complaints about Oracle that you can probably guess, but the two things I will say for them without qualification or reservation are that one, their free tier is actually free. And two, their data transfer pricing is amazing. For, if you want me to add a third one in, it's that their service offering is legitimate. I've kicked the tires on a bunch of them and I like them a lot. To be clear, they are sponsoring my podcast these days. And my rule has always been, you cannot buy my opinion. I think that from that perspective, Oracle Cloud is great. There are a bunch of challenges with them, to be clear. I am not a shill, but I will call out what's good. And to be clear, I would still be saying this if they were not sponsoring what, I, what, I, what I'm doing. And I know this because for over a year, I've been saying this in public loudly already. Yeah. Well, I just so, want to be I very mean, clear on that point right there. I, am not, I don't shill for anyone. No, and, and and if we and if we dig in a little bit more, I I, I do want to spend some time talking about you, Corey, um, of and uh, and then chat a little bit more about you. Um, and and I, that is one thing that I think comes through um, uh, is, is authenticity, and that's always something where you've never really been afraid to say um, something, you know, good or bad about a company. Um, uh, and and with AWS, um, you know, you've been sort of. Uh, you know, sometimes you you say it in sort of good fun. Other times, you really hold their feet to the fire, and I and I personally admire that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, in terms of um, AWS in general, they seem to be very much so publicly. They're like, oh yeah, we love Corey, right? And sometimes maybe they seem a little bit annoyed um, and so forth. But I'm I'm curious. I mean, you had a New York Times article written about you know this, this snark and 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 this sort of holding uh, AWS accountable. I'm really curious, like, you know, it seems like they they accept it, but, you know, you know, how how did, how is it actually, what's your relationship actually with them? Do you find that they handle criticism well or, um, I mean, maybe not just AWS in general, but all companies? A example of how this works is I say what I think about these things, and I have been since I started this place and I had no audience worth mentioning. It's begin as you mean to go on. And that was something that I held to across the board. There's also a misunderstanding that there is no Ted Amazon who is going to sit there and have the single corporate opinion. Big companies are comprised of lots of people. For those of us who consider a big company one that has 200 people in it, that's a bit of a challenge to wrap my head around. But it's true. Different service teams have different opinions on me. Different groups have different opinions. But the, by and large, the most common one even now is that they have not heard of me. And that I find just egregious, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, that New York Times profile as well uh, said at one point that AWS has paid Corey for advice. Uh, I could not possibly comment on that, but I am citing that that is what was included in the New York Times article. Companies do not generally want a bunch of people to tell to do ego stroking. It, they were well, not successful ones. They want to know what they're doing wrong so that they can improve it on some level. And I have a laundry list of criticisms I can give you about AWS, but I have never for a moment doubted the authenticity of their customer obsession approach. Now, in aspects of Amazon, like the commercial retail business, that, that expresses itself and what feels to me as being something that makes a, that, that's about making customers do things that advantage Amazon in certain ways. Whereas in the AWS space, it's about how can we best serve customers? And there is a key distinction there. I, looking at all the, on all the time I've spent working with AWS, with all of the things I have said, they have never tried to muzzle me in what I say. They have tried to correct the record at times when they mm -hmm. believe what I am saying is not accurate. If I agree, I will correct the record. If not, I will tell them so. And 
And I've never once found someone, I never once caught someone speaking uh, on behalf of AWS or speaking to me in a lie. People can be wrong. Don't get, don't misunderstand me. But when I, when I, they tell me things and I back channel check them, I have never once found it to be inaccurate. That counts for something. Yeah. And to grow on this a little bit, uh, your like wit and your humor and sometimes, you know, your crassness, whatever that might be, it's, it's always really quick. And so even though I think you can um, almost feel like what you're saying is off the cuff, I think it's, it's very clear that, that there's a ton of thought that you put into what you write and what you say. Um, and I'm wondering actually if similar to AWS having leadership principles, right, or, or tenets that they build stuff around. Do you have a specific set of tenets or principles written down somewhere that you look to when you're crafting your critiques or whether or not you're deciding to critique or defend? Is there like something pinned up to your cork board that's like, this? these are my tenets and these are how I evaluate certain things? Great question. I've taken them a step further and I've tweeted about them. There are seven of them. And Ooh, it, at the DuckTale group. See that. Uh, I can just the, I can read the quick list to you without delving into Please. them. Uh, Rule one, it's our it's our marketing beliefs and our rules. Uh, rule one is consent is required. Uh, number two is humor is necessary. Uh, three is punch up, not down. Four is that the competition doesn't matter. Rule five is that trust is earned over years and lost in a second. Rule six is help our customers be awesome. And rule seven, which is more of a marketing thing, it is protect subscriber information. It's the it goes back to we value. Like, we have to, like, trust is easily destroyed. Honestly, we're looking at reworking uh, number seven to a subset of another, but it's so important we want to call it out on its own. Again, articulating these things is a challenge, but that is how right. we wind up viewing the world. And there's a reason that I have a pet domain of twitterforpets.com when I need to make mm -hmm. fun of some random startup because making fun of an actual startup is shitty. You're basically crapping all over someone's life work at this point, and that doesn't feel good. By the time you're a multi-trillion dollar company, you can take my slings and arrows. And there's still nuance to that. One of the things I got wrong was holding to that belief absolutely in the early days. AWS releases a new service, and the first thing I do is dunk on it. There's a relatively small team that spent the last 18 months of blood, sweat, and tears building that thing. And if all the first thing that I do is make fun of it and talk about how it's bad, that doesn't feel good. And that's not who I aspire to be. So I find ways to talk about services most of the time when in a way that is making fun of things that aren't going to horribly offend people. For example, no one spent 18 months naming AWS Trainium. And if they did, maybe they should feel bad today. It's It comes down to where do you draw the line and where do you focus on it? Occasionally, they will release something that is just so terrible, I cannot even think of a nice thing to say, and I will excoriate it publicly. And I try to do that to very limited degrees, but there are times where when you're putting this out into the world and attempting to charge customers money for it and it's crap, I'm sorry, you, the, whoever it is that has put that amalgamation of things together has failed the team that built it and has failed their customers. Now, I will say this for AWS, services don't get worse over time. And a lot of things that I savaged, such as uh, EFS, their Elastic File System, when it first came out, has now become a staple of some of my workflows and I recommend it to people on an ongoing basis. It is... That is valuable. What I think people get wrong, and I see this all the time, and it's why I started the newsletter, to be honest with you, is for my own purposes, of once people learn something, they don't go back and validate that it's still true. 
I talk to people who believe that you still have a 10 tag limit on resources. I talk to people who who do not know that availability zones names are randomized in an account. I further talk to people who do not know that they have since started putting a zone ID into some of their API calls where you can actually disambiguate those between different accounts. And these are things that were not true once upon a time and then become true, but people don't update their, their knowledge and insight into it. That's what I do. So you um, mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, you were a little bit annoyed that there are some people at AWS who don't know who you are. I'm an, um, well, let's be clear here. I'm annoyed that there are people who don't know who I am. It, I don't need to bound that to not AWS. Not after today. You don't need to bound that just Whole to world. AWS. Um, well, well, speaking of of, um, of people who are semi-annoyed that um, uh, AWS doesn't know who they are, uh, Ben Kehoe recently published a very uh, interesting article on Medium that I know you commented on uh, on Twitter uh, about AWS, you know, sort of not having a central uh, understanding of who a human being is um, and being able to carry over a lot of those um uh, you know, preferences and personalizations, even if they're working across multiple, uh, you know, multiple companies and they've got separate logins and you, there should be no SSO where you can log in and access everything that could, uh, that could be very dangerous. But just this idea of knowing and owning an identity for a human being, um, and you, you sort of uh, extended this to say, um, you know, why do I have to fill out the same 18 fields on the reInvent form or anytime I sign up for, you know, a webinar or things like that? Um, I'm just really curious. I mean, and you said you wholeheartedly sort of agree with Ben on that. Um, what's the problem with that? Why is it such a problem that a, a company like AWS that's so customer obsessed and so customer focused, as you uh, as you mentioned, um, maybe doesn't actually know who their customers are? It's to be honest, it's a legacy story because AWS clearly learns uh, from its own customers. And that's useful in many respects. Originally, the rule was you're one customer, one AWS account. Great. There are still companies we talk to running 10,000 instances in a single account in a single region instead of having multiple accounts like a reasonable best practice should. That is, that takes time. Well, that's the one-way door customers pass through. And they didn't build their systems with that in mind. There are a number of companies that nail this. Google Cloud, for example. I'm already logged into my Google account in my browser. I go to cloud.google.com and say, oh, I want to try this. It automatically knows who I am. It doesn't ask things. Like Honestly, I've got to level with you. One of the most disappointing uh, aspects of AWS from a team perspective, and I, I lay this to be clear at leadership, not the individual hardworking people there, right. is AWS marketing. They are in many cases, disjointed. They don't understand who their customer is. They don't understand the value of storytelling. They, their counterexample is, look at Emily Freeman, who recently started there, at any of the talks that she has given and a thing she says online, and juxtapose that with everything else AWS marketing does. It's clear she's not a culture fit, but I'm hoping that that changes and the culture shifts to become more like her. If she leaves and that doesn't happen, they have failed. I want to be very clear on this. But as we look at this, they talk about how data is so important and data is the key and data is the future. And why do I have to fill out that same form a bunch of times? Why do you talk about how important it is to, they launch a whole service called Amazon Personalize that you can present different experiences based upon who someone is and you build profiles of them over time. Great. Why don't you try dogfooding that before you start talking about how great it is? And right. The thing that makes a company amazing is also the thing that makes it suck. And marketing is a hard job. I want to be clear on this because 
Amazon is a company comprised of microservice organizations. And anytime they have to do anything in a shared sense, it's messy, it's a seam, and it's a challenge. Like the bill is a great example of this. The console is another, and marketing is another. They build a bunch of building blocks and say, you can build an amazing house like that. Really? What kind of house? To answer that question, here's our guest speaker on stage from Netflix. Right. Great. I'm a bank. I don't necessarily want to do exactly what Netflix does. Or let's be clear. I, w I think I want to do what Netflix does and I should be actively prevented from doing those things because they stream movies and you are a bank. So right. <laughs> let's make sure that we contextualize this, but speak to challenges specific to, to individual industries. If I wind up, if I want to deploy something, and this is, I think on some level, the blessing and curse of serverless, if I want to deploy something into my environment that's going to solve a business problem, I would vastly prefer to just take a packaged solution than implement it myself. Let me give you a real example of this. I My, my serverless bill is something like, what, seven bucks a month right now or so for the entire system that builds my, my stuff. And five of that is uh, is something I think it's uh, was Comprehend, though I might switch some of that to Algolia. Point, and I'm, so I've spent basically no money on this thing. It, whereas in return, I spend until last week, a hundred and twenty bucks every month to Epsigon to uh, to instrument that application and tell me what's broken and put that all in one place. Now, all that data lives already within AWS services, but I don't want to go to five different tabs and cross-reference between them to answer this. I want to go to one. And that is a like what that they are paying at Epsigon to service my account is nothing compared to the $120 a month I'm paying them. And I pay it with a smile on my face because it's the value that it gives me drastically outweighs the cost. AWS is focused on the building block primitives and well, we're going to charge a markup on the cost and they're not talking about value because they don't know how to talk about value, culturally speaking. Yeah. We see it yeah. in other ways where they cancel reinforce their strategic security conference, but only after canceling the analyst summit a month or two beforehand and scheduling the America online summit for the same day and time. It's security is job zero. That means it's no one's job, apparently, because <laughs> you, you see these things. They cancel the whole thing. A week goes by and then they say, oh, it's now a virtual event. It's who's minding the store over there. It's it is incoherent. They're talking now about their virtual experience for reInvent that as of this recording is still on. It's going to be a live stream keynotes and afterwards they'll have the breakout session videos up on the internet. Oh, like you do every year. That's a virtual right. experience worth having, yeah. right? It's, exactly. Why bother? And with travel restrictions being what they are and the next wave of cloud customers being folks who aren't going to go to Las Vegas to learn about these things, build a virtual first event. And the argument is like, well, it's sort of a sales conference because they make an awful lot of money from sponsorships. I do my Requinvent sidecar virtual event at the same time. And I assure you, I am not charging small money to sponsors and they're paying it with smiles on their faces because yeah. surprise, it delivers an audience, delivers value. It tells a story about what they do. The idea of, well, we, we can't charge anywhere near what we can for virtual events as we can for physical events is untrue. You just haven't figured out how to tell a story and deliver those people what they want. I'm empathetic. Truly, I am. But it, even their online event is badly done. What The, the reason people like what I do is I distill it down because no one's going to watch three hours of one keynote, then the other four keynotes, then watch through over a thousand breakout session videos. But they're absolutely going to have a, here's my reinvent in five minutes spiel, my 30 minute uh, keynote rebuttal given mm -hmm. hours after the keynote where I make fun of the things that they announced while rounding them up is great because it, it has that veneer of authenticity to it, which is veneer of authenticity, sort of a contradiction in terms, but it, it, right. it has the ring of authenticity to it. 
because this is what I think about this shooting from the hip. This is what I think it has the potential to do, the potential not to do. And people think that my snark and humor is there because of deep-seated personality defects. And while that's completely true, it also is because without that, this stuff is incredibly boring. And it is how I approach bringing it to life. People right. should be listening to my nonsense for those jokes. Not because I'm the only coherent place you can get a roundup of what the hell they're trying to inarticulately say. Right. And that goes back to the that goes back to the um, the personalization thing. And I, and I will say, too, I think AWS as an organization has a hard time connecting with individuals, people within AWS. I mean, Rebecca and I met through her being part of the Heroes program uh, or running the Heroes program. And um, I have so many really good contacts and friends in AWS now. But I think, as, uh, as you said, as, as a whole, it is it is very much so disconnected. And again, I want to be very clear here. 95% of what AWS does is great. I believe that sincerely, but sitting here patting them on the back for, yeah, S3 is a marvel and the S3 storage lens is incredible. And Nimble Studio, I think, is inspired as far as changing some of the trajectory of these things. That's great and all, but what's the value in talking about those things in, oh, and belaboring the obvious? At some point, I just... That's, that's marketing's job. They should be singing those praises. But right. marketing is constrained. They have to be at every company where they can say that something that they do is great or they can say nothing about it. But they can't say, yeah, there are problems with what we're offering because that's not how marketing works. Right. I tend to take a different view and I don't work for these companies. Speaking about your humor bringing things to life and, and what it takes to be authentic, Jeremy and I feel like you might be a Russian Twitter bot with how active you are. Can you No, I'm just trapped at home with two small children. <laughs> no, it's... I have a interesting expression of ADHD in many respects. I am, I, I, the things that I wind up uh, gravitating towards are like, again, the thing that makes you rock also makes you suck. I am terrible at preparing in advance for things like that, which means that when you suck at preparation, you've got to be good at improv. There's mm -hmm. no other answer. You have to be able to deliver on demand, which makes my podcast recording super easy because, oh yeah, here's what we think we're going to talk to. Nope, don't need to see it. Ask questions, I'll answer, or vice versa. Organic conversations. It's helpful. I mean, I can do the preparation thing for conference talks and the like, but knowing how I handle on-the-spot questions is, is useful. It also becomes, it's less work on my part, and it also means that I can be on panels or I can do an ask me anything on a stage to a crowd and not worry that they're going to ask me something that's going to put me in a very uncomfortable position because I know how to, I know how to handle those things. Right. Again, this is, this is me. I'm not suggesting other people pursue this. And I actively encourage people not to. Because I, I hurt people as I was learning how to do this at various times throughout my life. And the failure mode is clever. Uh, the failure mode of clever is being an ass. And you don't, you, the world doesn't need more of that. There are lots of paths to wind up audience building, to driving engagement. Humor is one of them, and it's the path that I've taken. But there are many others. Find the thing that works for you. Yeah, well, I think I think you do it really well, um, and I, I know I enjoy um, I enjoy reading it um, and and seeing how you're going to react to something. I always love your commentary on uh, naming things as well. So, um, if, <laughs> well, there's if another people... reason behind naming. To be very clear on this, because if I sit there and I make fun of some esoteric uh, expression of how uh, their 17th or 18th service that manages containers winds up working, that's, that's sort of an inside joke that people are going to need. Like, you must do the re required reading first for this joke to make sense. 
That's a silly name is something that anyone of any skill level can appreciate and participate in. Right. Making jokes and other, everything I do more broadly accessible is key. Give me a choice between giving a 100 level talk and a 400 level talk. I'll bias for the 100 level talk every time because I want to be as broadly accessible to folks whenever possible. Love it. So, hey, for those few people who don't know who you are, um, if they do want to follow you or sign up for your newsletter, how do they do that? Last week in AWS.com is where it all begins. That links to my Twitter profile that asks you to sign up for the newsletter, which I assure you, you want to sign up for. And other sort of things as well. We're about to launch our charity t-shirt campaign, for example. There are we try and keep things interesting and keep it light and new, and I crave novelty. So doing the same joke over and over doesn't work super well. How do we express it in new and interesting ways? More to come on that over the next year or so. Awesome. All right, thank you, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Good to talk to you. Thank you both for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Corey Quinn for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Lumigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 108. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca and me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily and at Becca Odelay. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.